the optimal life. Mark and Margaret, welcome. Um, so talk to us. Your life's changed many years ago. Yeah. Take us back. Tell us about your son and, and what, what happened at a very young age when you guys figured out what was going on with him. Mark, you want to start? Sure. Um, our son, Harry, um, at about uh, just before the age of three, was uh, diagnosed on the autism spectrum. So we met with neurologists, and I think our story mirrors a lot of parents' stories and that it wasn't just a diagnosis, it was a prognosis. So along with autism and all the anxiety and unknowns that come with come with it, uh, the neurologist basically told us, you know, he's not going to be ready for first grade. Don't plan on him going to college. So, re- you know, keep in mind, he's not even three years old. So uh, along with all the heartbreak and things that you're going through, uh, we are just angry. Like, how can you say that about a three-year-old? And um, pretty defiant and just basically said um, he will be ready for first grade and we'll, we'll determine on, on what he's capable of. And that was kind of the end of it. Um, so we set out on a course really on our own. And again, same, same story as many parents back then um, and currently uh, and really figured out what the best way uh, ways for him to learn uh, and to socialize were. And, and, and Margaret really kind of had the first breakthrough. Mm. So um, let's go back. Let's go back to that real quick too, Mark. What did you guys see uh, when he was two years old? What kind of did you guys see signs that, hey, maybe our son is a little different? Oh, yeah. I mean, he I would say he disappeared. It was disappearing before our eyes uh, where there once might have been eye contact. That eye contact disappeared where once there seemed to be just that sort of joint attention that disappeared as well. We were losing him right in front of us, no matter how hard we tried. So, you know, to Mark's point, it, it wasn't surprising. We were at, we actually had to plead with our pediatrician. We knew something was wrong. We thought, you know, does he not have his hearing? What is going on? We, he is not connecting with us in, in any way. Um, so, so you, let me just ask you, did you guys see that he was connecting prior? Like at one and one and a half years old, he was connecting. Yep. And, and then around was, two, two yeah. and a half, you started seeing a decline. Yep. About 18 months, he started disappearing on us. And I, I that's the only way I can describe it. It's like he just, he got further and further and further away from us. And I guess now when I think about it, he was retreating into his own world. Um, and we did not know how to reach him. And it's interesting, you know, you can go back and look at pictures now and you can see an actual difference that um, they're, they're, the spark in his eye just kind of diminished. So it, it was gradual, but it was uh, pronounced um, and to the point where, uh, you know, I think our fears were, is this autism? You know, and this mm-hmm. is 20 some years ago. Right. right. The, the resources were. Yeah. Yeah. There's no roadmap. There's no like guide like, hey, you, your kid's three years old. Here's what you do at three and a half. Here's what you do it for you. There are many, many uh, areas to find information. Not all the information is verified or accurate or something that would make sense, um, at least to us. So uh, it really was navigating a whole new world. So, so dig into that a little bit, though, back to him retreating and disappearing, as you call it. Mm hmm. What does that look like? Because there may be parents that are going through something and they have no clue what's going on with their two or three year old. What what exactly do those details look like? So for for me and Mark, you can jump in too. For me, it was it was 
at one point in time, when I talk about joint attention, think about bringing a toy, right? We're going to play with a toy. We're going to interact together. There's there's a back and forth. There's a joint attention on that object, whether it's a teddy bear or a, a train, whatever. Uh, he was not giving us that. At one point in time, he would interact back and forth, but then he would start to just do his own thing. He would play by himself. He would amuse himself, entertain himself, but he wouldn't share that with me. Eye contact disappeared, where once we, you know, you have that that beautiful joy of seeing your child connect and that spark of just, oh, it's, and he was almost like he couldn't see us anymore. We weren't, we like his his vision almost disappeared, almost like it was a uh, we were blurry to him is maybe the best way I can describe it. Mm. Uh, Mark, anything almost else? As it, yeah, it would, I mean, imagine um, watching your son and da- or daughter being in a room in which you were outside glass looking in. Yeah, it, it was. It was couldn't reach him. That's a, couldn't. Yeah. Him. And whether that you could physically be holding him, but it was like that, that, that what at one point in time when we were interacting and sharing things and laughing, there was no connection in a smile. There was no connection in pointing to anything. There was, there was nothing we could bring to him that mattered to him. Um, wow. I can't imagine the frustration as parents. This is your newborn child. I mean, fairly newborn. And you're getting ready to get into this next phase where they're walking and talking and the diapers are almost done. And now and you're dealing with this kid who's declining at that at that stage that had to be so frustrating and start consuming the two of yours every moment together. Like, how do we fix this? Right. And and that. You know, the further you dig into it, the, the further you realize that there is no easy fix to this. There, there is no magic potion that no magic vitamin that you can give them that's just going to make it go away. It is learning how to reconnect. For us, at least, it was learning how to make what we were trying to share with him matter. Because if it didn't matter, he would continue not to engage. So I, I think for us, that that's what we were hearing from the experts is, oh, if you want him to, to communicate with you, you have to model the behavior you want to see. So have a conversation with him and model how to say hello or model how to interact with a toy. But again, to Mark's point, if you're in one room and he's in the other, he doesn't care. He didn't care that I wanted him to turn and look at me and say hello. He was very content in his world. So we had to figure out how to kind of make that breakthrough and make that connection to make him want to care, to pay attention to what we were hoping that connection would be. You guys said that during the diagnosis and the visit that the doctors told you that your three-year-old son, quote, didn't understand the difference between the beginning and end of a book, would not be ready for first grade, and don't plan for him to go to college. They tell you that your son's just turning three years old. Yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember how how do you how how do you, how does the the an adult mind comprehend what was just told to them and how did you respond? Um, you know, hearing it again after all these years having known this and having this been in our story, it still brings tears to my eyes. Um, pardon me. I'm glad this is not on camera. Um, I think we both handled it a little bit differently. Um, Mark talked about anger and we were definitely angry, but honestly, it's, it was, it was like a nightmare that you couldn't wake up from. And I don't mean that he was a nightmare. What I meant with, 
it, it wasn't him. It was this situation that we were in. Like how, how do we, how, how do we help our son without any knowledge, without any background, with the experts telling you give up, mm. don't, you know, you know, lower that bar and us seeing this vibrant child that we've known disappear on us how do we as parents fix that because as parents you want to fix everything for your kid right you don't want them to have a skin knee you want them to have be happy and joyful and engaged and have purpose and have a life at three and when you're seeing your kid disappear on you it's it's like you're failing as a parent to see your reaction just now margaret going back to 22 years ago when that diagnosis was given give or take to see those feelings still that intense, especially everything you guys have done and created with Islands of Brilliance, and we're going to get to this, but just that 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 pain of those memories of of your son's early childhood, uh, it, it seems like that. Geez, it it really never goes away, no matter what you do. No. No. How about how about for you, Mark? Um. <laughs> A couple of things. I'm Nate. I'm half Sicilian, so you know you always get charged up in situations like this. Um, so I, uh, you know, my reaction, like I, I never disagreed with the diagnosis. I, I felt the way that um, it was, uh, uh, the assessment was a bit unfair uh, to Harry, um, but it was just the, you know, the way that the information was delivered and some of the things they said. Him, I, I was just kind of like how on earth can you do that but i think for me looking back on it 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 uh it immediately triggered a response that ended up um you know really changing obviously it changed the arc of our lives and and ways we couldn't imagine um I, the thing i i, I uh, that gives me hope i think is we've talked now to how they handle these types of diagnosis now. Um, and they're much different. And, and they allow, I think, for, um, there's a there's a certain, uh, I don't know if grieving process is the right thing to say, be, because I think what you're grieving is the loss of what you thought um, your child's uh, life experience is going to be and what the family experienced. And, and that's, so the, I think now they, they allow for that and they put families together uh, shortly thereafter to, to, to have a sense of community and, and others to help them in the journey that they're going to go through. So I think the, the uh, you know, what we experienced and I think some of the isolation that followed and follows and I think the work that we do now that tries to eliminate that and create a sense of belonging community, but going back to that, it's, um, it was pretty, um, it was, it was stark. Uh, it, it, it's just a time that, um, but, you know, but I look on the positive side, it's like it got us to get up and do something about uh, the future and not, you know, um, the information we were given. What, what did you guys do in, in the ensuing weeks, months, and maybe even years? What, how, how do you handle that? So that's a great follow-up question because I was kind of kind of add to what Mark just said. I think when I say that Harry was not a nightmare, I mean that. 
he had such creativity. He was such a busy kid. He he was constantly doing and building and creating. And I think that's the aspect that they never saw in Harry with the assessment process. So we, you know, he was given toys that he had never seen before. So they said, well, he, you know, he's he doesn't have an imagination. I'm like, well, yeah, he does when he's got his toys, right? So there was a little bit of like, okay, we're in this new world and this is an unfamiliar world, but we also knew that they didn't see the Harry we saw, right? We saw this very creative, amazing kid, but you had to do it in a way that worked for him. Um, so I'm gonna build on that question that you just said, how how did we reach him? What did we do? Um, I went back to, you know, the model behavior you wanna see. Well, that, that wasn't working because he didn't care. But what he did care about was trains. He was a kid who loved Thomas the Tank Engine. Um, and I got so tired of talking to myself week after week, trying to get him to model that, that I decided, you know what, what he cares about right now is a train. So if I become a train, maybe he'll pay attention to me. So I literally got on my hands and knees and pretended I was one of the Thomas the Tank Engine characters. And I made the train noises and I whistled. And it was the first time that he actually looked at me. Because what I was doing mattered to him. He cared about trains. He lived on the island of Sodor. And if I became a train, I entered into his world. When? How long was that after the diagnosis? Do you remember? Gosh, I want to say about six months. So six months of uh, continued sadness, heartache, frustrations. Again, you guys don't have the resources that you're yeah. providing today. This was 20 year, plus years ago. So you've got six months of trying to figure this thing out. And then you finally come up with this happened by happenstance or did you have a plan with the train? Um, honestly, I'll be I, I was an actress at the time. Uh, I have a new career now. It's it's teaching. But at the time I was an actress. And if there's one thing I've learned in acting, if you're not reaching your audience, you got to change your script. Um so I changed my script because I kept trying to get him to listen to me and he wanted nothing to do with me. So I changed my script mm. to make it something relevant to him. And that is a through line that we have kept throughout his life and throughout our program. We made what we made that interaction mean something to him. Um, and by that, I mean, he cared about Thomas. So if we would engage with Thomas in any way, if I was either acting like a train, playing with trains, watching a video with him, reading a Thomas Tank Engine book, that's when we reconnected with him. And that's kind of how we pulled him back. Uh, and I don't want to say pulled him back because he's still, I mean, he still has that passion. So I'm, I want to say we, that's the bridge we built. Maybe that's a better analogy. We built a bridge to his world and have, because we built that bridge, he was able to come back to us. But a day like that though, Margaret, for you, after six months of knowing what his diagnosis was and all the built up frustrations that we've already talked about, that moment, had to be uh, uh how do you how do you define that moment because it had to be pretty wild and powerful and maybe was, maybe somewhat like extremely overwhelming too holy cow this is a breakthrough it was a spark of hope that i hadn't had in a long time because it was eye contact deep eye contact and it only lasted i mean it was brief but i I will remember that moment. I can tell you exactly where I was on the floor, where he was on the floor and how he connected with me. Mm. Uh, you just was, gave me the goosebumps. Yeah. I mean, it was, that was, that was our, our moment of hope and our moment of like, we got to use this, this, this is working. And, you know, the next time it might be two seconds and, you know, Mark can kind of fast forward the story from there, but 
that was a moment that had been missing from our lives for a long time. And when we yeah, had that, it was like, it was like the match was lit. The fire was lit in us again. Like, Hey, we figured something out. Mm. Wow. It's one of those moments you want to hold on to, but, and, and it was fleeting, but it gave you like, okay, we're on to at least something. I haven't yep. seen my, ch- my child hasn't noticed us in a year. Let's just call it. And mm-hmm. finally you have this awakening moment. Yep. And now you're going, how do we build on this train thing? Absolutely. And boy, so, do we build on the train thing. <laughs> so tell, tell us, tell us uh, generally speaking, then how do you build on that? Oh boy. Uh, you know, it's funny because what I would do at home couldn't be done at school, right? I mean, I basically anything that we had to do at school, I would do at home through train. So adding was putting trains together and taking them apart. Any reading had to be a Thomas the Tank Engine book. But at school, he wouldn't read because it wasn't his choice of books. Mm. So I remember one day, I can't remember, Mark, was it his first birthday? One, one, one of his birthdays where I brought a whole bunch of toys and I brought his Thomas and Tank Engine book and we had all sorts of stuff. And I was reading to the class and they were like, oh my gosh, you know, Harry doesn't read for us. Well, he grabbed one of the books that I brought and read to the class. And this, his peers and his teachers were shocked because they're like, Harry doesn't read. I'm like, are you kidding? He reads all the time, as long as it's a train book. And that was sort of like the veil was off, like, oh, well, we can't do that in school. And I'm like, well, he can read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pay attention to that. He's in first grade and he can read between the beginning or end of the book. Now he knows. Oh, there you go. So you guys stay focused on things that he liked. This is what parents should be taking away if they're finding themselves in the same situation. Focus on don't it's probably not many things. Right. You got to stay focused, narrowly focused. Well, I would say it, it, in what often happens is it it may feel counterintuitive, right? Like for a three-year-old who loves trains, it's like that seems pretty easy, right? But as your kid gets older and let's say they are 17 and still love Thomas the Tank Engine, we would say don't shy away from that. There's still beauty in that. Um, because it, it's still a passion. And if you're told as you're growing, you know, going through life that your passions aren't valid, that the things you love, you shouldn't love, or we shouldn't honor, what does that make you, you know, what does it tell you, um, as far as your value? Like the things you love are not a value. So I don't want to listen to you anymore. So yeah, you got to dig deep for patience sometimes. And sometimes, you know, even at 25, it's like, okay, we're going to hear another train story, aren't we? And then we kind of look at each other and we smile. And we're like, yep, but that's why he's here with us right now. So be grateful for that. Dig mm-hmm. deep and find patience if you need to. But there is such beauty in making that connection that is worth every ounce of patience that you have. What other but tips? I also you- think it's about, uh, I think it's about finding joy in what they're interested in too, because, you know, as a family, we've embraced that. You know, we've done cross-country train trips as as Harry's been older and, and you know, encouraged him to kind of evolve his interests throughout over time from Thomas to, you know, kind of HO uh, scale rail building to now he travels independently. So I think the the leaning into it part for parents is really important uh, because I, as Margaret said, I think intuitively we think well-rounded kids and you, you almost have to do the opposite. It's like through everything you have, at that one interest or those those kind of seemingly geeky interests because that's where the connection is that's where the joy is and that's where the relationship is mm. and you're right i mean you could make those moments so much fun i mean it's it's fun it's you know i've 
I rode the scariest train trip I've ever ridden just this past year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you have. I'm sure you know quite a bit about trains now, you guys. You guys are train experts at this point. Well, we, we are. Uh, we <laughs> sort of. <laughs> he's the expert and we let him be the expert. <laughs> now, is he your only child? No, nope, he's our youngest. He's your youngest. Do you think that you would have had more children had you not gone through this thing with Harry? Ooh, that's a really good question. So let, let's let's go back and be grateful for the two beautiful children we have. Um, <laughs> he has an older brother, Charlie, and I will I want to give Charlie a lot of credit too because it wasn't just Mark and I who embraced Harry and all his uniqueness. His brother Charlie never treated him as a less than anything. As a matter of fact, Charlie challenged us to have higher expectations because he's like, you know, just because he has autism doesn't mean he's dumb. And I don't like it when people treat him like he's dumb. Mm. And that from an older brother really kind of says it all. Absolutely. So how about back to the other question? <laughs> oh, I thought we could avoid that one. I don't, I know, and I honestly never thought about it. Um, I was an older parent to begin with. I mean, um, I was in my mid thirties when we had Harry and he, he, he was a lot. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I, I mean, listen, raising children in any circumstance is difficult as you guys know. And then you throw this very complicated layer into it where it takes all your attention, all your energy, all these long days and long nights and, and, Again, all the research that you guys probably found yourself doing and trying to figure out how to make this as, as seamless as possible. Uh, that's that's a tremendous burden that the two of you had to experience. So I, I wonder, you know, I, we could always play the what if game, but I was just curious if it was something that the two of you had ever really talked about amongst each other. Not, I don't know that it would ever have been a conscious uh, as much as, you know, to what you're alluding to an unconscious, like, you know, we've got, we got a lot of lot to handle right now. So it might've been more of the unconscious than like, right. this is it. <laughs> so, so to, so follow up on that, then I, I really want to understand this because I, again, back for the same reasons. Um, how do you two make sure that you guys still had time for each other? Cause this, wow. again, this, this was a tremendous burden. And how do you keep, the marriage how do you keep the romance how do you keep that all that intact I, I i will say like every marriages we've had um wonderful moments and we've had some challenges um um i don't think there's any easy solution any um magic formula i think the thing that we have come to learn is the more we communicate, the more we have aligned purpose and find aligned joy. And by that, I mean, our favorite moments are with our family. I mean, I know a lot of people like do do the, all these fancy things. It's like we find the most most joy in the simplest things. Um, you, and guys must have a, you guys must have some form of alignment <laughs> and bond because this, uh, again, this could have easily destroyed a marriage there's a lot of people that would have said hey you know what it's been 10 years it's been 15 years it's been 20 years i think it's time we, we part ways and here you guys are 20 plus years later aligned islands of brilliance you've been doing that for over a decade i mean 
uh, it's it's probably a bigger feat than maybe you even realize. I think we see a lot of instances, certainly, and with the amount of families that we've met over the years where it does, you know, marriages end. Uh, if anything, you know, there, as Margaret says, there were some real challenging moments. I think, you know, uh, Margaret, early on, I, I was spending a lot of time with my oldest son, Charlie, we go to the driving range and do stuff like that. And, and Margaret challenged me. It's like, you need to spend more time with Harry, you know, Harry's more difficult. And that was, that was tough. I, you know, I wasn't happy being challenged like that, but she was right. And, um, you know, and I ended up uh, doing more things like, hey, let's go see the steam locomotive and stuff like that. And it really changed, I think, the way I looked at it. And, um, and and I think, if anything, over the years, it's probably strengthened us as an entire family. Um, I don't, there aren't many families that are as tight as us. Um, and I'm proud of that. Um, but you're right, it's, it's, um, people react to things in, in different ways. And, and when there is, um, you know, situations at, at, at home and, and difficulties, sometimes it, you know, it really wreaks havoc on, on a marriage. And I think in, in many ways we've been, uh, fortunate that we've had the fortitude to get through some really difficult times to be where we are now. Mm. Very powerful, inspirational stuff. Uh, so, 2012, we've we've talked about it a little bit. Let's let's get to it. How how does this this idea of Islands of Brilliance? First off, where does the name come from, and how did you guys come up with this idea? Um, this is totally Mark's idea. So, um, <laughs> inspired well, by totally. life, but but I'm gonna yeah. let you tell that story. I'll I'll back up a few years. So uh, Margaret mentioned she was uh, an actress, but then went to get her master's uh, degree in special education. At the time we were living in Minneapolis, um, and so she was going to the University of Minnesota. I was a creative director. I worked in the advertising industry, so I worked for one of these creative firms in in Minneapolis. And Harry's about eight or nine years old then, and I know he's spending a lot of time using social media. He's on YouTube watching stop motion stuff. And, um, but the thing that I found interesting is he's like carrying on conversations and the threads. I'm like, that's cool that he's able to do that, but at school he'll struggle with, uh, peer to peer communication. Mm. And then, uh, one day, uh, I'm working on some project for work at, using Adobe illustrator, which is this illustration program. And he's watching me and he says, dad, can I try that? So I literally gave him five minutes of instruction. Here's how to draw a square. Here's a circle, change color, stuff like that. And give him permission to play around with it. And uh, I left him alone for about a half hour. And then he comes and finds me. He says, Dad, come look what I did. And I'm not really expecting anything. But he brings me in. He's drawn Percy, this character from Thomas the Tank Engine. And I'm like, okay. And the thing is, he's used tools I haven't shown him how to use yet. So he's intuitively figured out the software to make stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm like, here's how you download a photo. Here's how you set type. And within days, I can't get him off my computer. He's on there all the time, like making these funny little cartoons and stuff. So, uh, you know, a week or so goes by, light bulb goes off over my head. I go, to, I walk to Mark and say, so what kind of special ed support would we need if we create this program where we match uh, autistic kids with uh, with a mentor who works in the design industry 
allowed them to do projects based on their special interest or what we call spin now. You know, so in Harry's case, trains and other kids, it might be Pokemon or Super Mario. What would that look like? So she said, well, we need this, this and that. So that that was the idea. I honestly, Islands of Brilliance, like came out of nowhere. I mean, I'm a creative guy. I've always been in the industry and like things just like happen like that. It was really about this idea that um, these kids have this this uh, light inside them that we need to honor and give permission to shine and give a space in which to shine. So that was that's where Islands of Brilliance came from. So it, it really was it, it, this idea for uh, a number of years. But I was you know I was working in advertising. Margaret became a teacher uh, in the schools. We moved back to Milwaukee. It's like, how do you do this? How do you start a nonprofit? All of that stuff. Uh, luckily, I, uh, I think in 2012, I was I was doing some work with the startup industry here in Milwaukee, and I heard about lean startup methodology and minimum viable products. So, oh, we don't have to raise any money. We can just kind of test this idea. So we tested it with seven students and seven mentors. Uh, we got some free space and access to equipment from Discovery World, which is an organization, great organization here in Milwaukee. And we really didn't know whether this would work or, or not, right? Because it's like work with Harry and I, are people going to want to volunteer for this, creative people? They're b- busy. A bunch of people showed up to the first meetup. Um, we did our first class, didn't charge anything. Um, uh, first week, it went great. Uh, the, the mentors loved the kids because they had these geeky interests that they shared and worked on projects. The real test was week two, because a lot of a lot of programs out there for autistic kids are what I would call guardrail programs, like stuff that neurotypical kids enjoy, but uh, autistic uh, children might not. So week two, about 10 minutes before uh, the workshop starts, uh, five of the seven kids that are there, they find their mentors, sit down, and go to work. And that's when we were like, holy cow this works mm. <laughs> wow. and so from there we uh you know that you know that was like the next epiphany moment when it was like this thing you know it can work it has legs to it so we did another workshop didn't change anything started to charge for it we figured out that there was funding for it uh be kind of like it was this this the side gig or side hustle as people talk about it for a while uh and then by 20 Fifth, end of 2015, it had grown to a point where uh, Margaret and I left our full-time jobs and we started to raise money for it. And it's just kind of grown in all sorts of different ways and uh, had positive impact on, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of people when you start to, you know, when you look at the ripple effect of student, family, mentors, uh, community, stuff like that, it's just, it's been pretty remarkable. That is remarkable. And then, so today it's evolved over the years now. Now you have all these various programs. What does it look like if, if a family that has a young one or a teenager, anyone that wants to get into this, what does the program look like and, and how does it function? Well, that's a great question uh, because it varies per family. Uh, we have what we call a concierge process. And by that, I mean, it's a conversation. Uh, we need to know as much as we can about their loved one. Uh, and it's a real conversation. It's I'm I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to ask a lot of questions, but I'm going to listen to you because I think, you know, in our experience, there was a lot of information that was given to us, but there wasn't a lot of questions that were asked of us. 
right? It was sort of like, oh, we've seen this. Your kid has this. Go ahead and do this and buy. As opposed to tell me about your kid. What, what do they love? How do they learn? How do you engage? What, what are your hopes and dreams for them? And honestly, those are conversations we have. And it sort of shapes our like, okay, this kid is really into video games and has played around with some scratch coding. Oh, I might recommend a program that has a little bit more rigor uh, because we've evolved so much. But at its core, our program focuses on what Mark said is that spin, that special interest. So anytime we can find out, that's the first question we ask is what is your kid's spin? What is their passion? Because once we know that, we know how to communicate with our kid, right? Tell me all about Pokemon. Oh, who's your favorite Pokemon? Oh, you like that guy? Oh, you're creating your own? That's awesome. Because we need to know that that kid can be heard and listened to and that we are a place where we will welcome those conversations. So that's your starting point. Then it's really a matter of how much level does that support that student need? Um, we are evolving our programs. I would say initially, if you're familiar with the world of autism, uh, they've evolved from things like Asperger's and high functioning and things like that. Now they evolve to levels. So there's different levels of support. Level one being the, the most minimal support, level two being more support, level three being, you know, the most support needed, right? And that relates to things like communication, uh, fine motor, all sorts of different things. We were best suited initially for level one, but because we want to serve as many students as possible, we are continually going back and refining and trying to find ways to serve more families we're still not perfect. Uh, we're still learning. We're trying to be as inclu inclusive as possible. But everything we're doing is to try to create programming that brings that connection, connection and joy, that makes such a difference for these students. Uh, Give us a, the yeah, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. Give us an example of a, a, a success story, a recent success story that comes to mind. Anything that just was like a wow. You, know, I'm sure you've got a gazillion of them. I have a, I'm just trying to figure out which one. Um, so we have uh, we have a, a program called our, our 3D modeling program called Blender, right? So if anybody is familiar with 3D modeling, uh, Disney might use something called Maya. There's also Fusion 360. There's uh, Rhino. There's a million different like CAD programs. They're very challenging, right? So we tell our students who want to get into blenders, like, come, but you got to learn the basics first, right? So this last workshop, I had four students, one who hadn't returned to us since COVID. So we were all in person and now uh, we do a lot of virtual. So one student who's coming to us, never touched blender before, hadn't seen us in years because of COVID. Uh, we had another student who's, uh, this was their very first workshop, never met us before, jumped right into the high rigor of blender. And then another student who has been saying he's been wanting to get in involved in blender for a long time. And again, if you haven't looked at it, Blender is a free program. It does a million different things. So our goal is how do we get kids into this 3D environment and let them learn some of the basics? How do you take a cube, smush it down to a plate, make it round, bevel the edges, some basics like this. But we also had kids who are like, okay, I'm going to learn that, but I'm so motivated to make my roller coaster cart that I'm going to do these basics, but I'm going to push myself to learn more. So I should, if I had the videos, I'd show you, but we had one student who created a Beetlejuice uh, worm. Remember the dude who likes eats Beetlejuice, created a beautiful oh. version of him. Another one who created their own character, uh, had the sketch that they came in with and then ended up learning how to create this in 3D and colorize it. And then another one who's a huge roller coaster fan who created this like literally from cubes, this beautiful roller coaster cart mm. uh, with wheels and everything. And it's like, that was in five weeks. And each session is about 75 minutes. So in five weeks, they went from their first initial experience in Blender to creating these really incredible 
not basic. They went beyond basic. I mean, I'm like, dude, bring it down, bring it down. And like, <laughs> it just kept pushing the envelope. But it was also moments of joy because when things go wrong, that's just as much of a chance to learn. Like, man, you just, you know, you just blew up Blender. What happened? Tell everybody else. And that's the fun. Those are learning moments that we try to celebrate because not, life doesn't go perfect all the time. And sometimes reflecting on, oh man, I just kept adding to it and I put the number up to here and then my computer crashed. Those are also moments of joy because they're funny. And if we can find humor and joy in them as opposed to frustration, mm. we've developed a community. Absolutely. Well, uh, as the name suggests, they're brilliant kids. They're brilliant people. They may they may find themselves on their own island, right? but they are brilliant people uh, when you give them something that, that really sticks with them. Mm-hmm. Um, when your son, Harry graduated college, what was that day like for you? Oh. Honestly, I wish it wasn't in COVID because one of our dreams to watch, to be able to watch him walk across the stage, um, and basically prove everybody wrong. And we had to do it virtually. Um, but boy, were we proud of him. I mean, I, that was one mountain climbed. How did he handle that day? Did it matter to him or was it just another day for him? I think um, that was um, that was definitely a mountain he wanted to, to climb, I think. Uh, you know, how he handled it, you know, might look a bit different. Uh, but, you know, he hasn't stopped from there either. And he graduated with honors. Uh, he's, you know, he's employed. Um, he travels independently. He's got this group of friends literally around the country who are interested in, in trains like he is. They actually took a trip out to eastern Pennsylvania this summer where they all met at, um, what's, the name? what's the name of the place? Strasburg Rail Museum. Yeah. Um, he just got his driver's license at the age of 25. He worked on that, you know, three mm-hmm. times it was the charm. So he continues to kind of, you know, use the term stack successes, you know, he continually um, becomes more and more successful and independent. And um, it, it's just kind of remarkable when you look at the, the overall journey of, of, of how, how he got there. And it was all these, you know, kind of incre- incremental growth uh, uh, points along the way. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. It's, it's overwhelming sometimes. As you guys look ahead, we're getting close to finishing up here, but but as you guys look ahead over the next several years, decades even, uh, what does is, what is Harry's life look like to you if you could picture it and how it unfolds? That's a great question. Um, I would say we recently took a trip to Durango, Colorado, and I mentioned the scariest train ride I've ever been on, and that was in Durango, Colorado, because it um, it's a pretty, pretty much an all day adventure to Silverton and then back. But it it is in these literally four hundred foot gorges, goes through the, up through the mountains, and there's one point where you literally can look out the side of the train, and if if everybody leaned against the train in a certain way, I felt like we were going to tumble down into the four hundred feet down into the gorge. He loved it. It was a, it was a a trip of a lifetime for him. Yeah. And what we loved about it is he was the first one up. He would go to that uh, train museum. He'd be filming at the crack of dawn. We'd do our adventures of the day. He'd stay. He'd film some more. I mean, I'd love for him to find a place where he has that kind of excitement, where he can engage in in his in his spin, which brings so much joy for him, uh, but that we can enjoy it together. 
and that I can know that he has other people who have, I mean, he was not the only one with his camera set up doing some filming. <laughs> it sure. was definitely, um, so that there's, there's a place where he can embrace that and love that and still have purpose and, and, you know, have a job and, and live as independently as possible. Um, but also he also has some health issues. So uh, mm. a place where he can be healthy, he's got uh, some pretty severe arthritis. And right now that is probably impacting his life more than his autism. Wow. Islandsofbrilliance.org. We've linked it in the show notes. Uh, where else can people find you guys online, social media, et cetera? All of it. <laughs> All of it. Islands of Brilliance everywhere. Yeah. But we're, yeah, on... we're on uh, LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, the normal spots, uh, our social media team does a great job. I don't really pay attention to social media anymore, but I hear from other people that it, it looks great. <laughs> well, we've linked your Facebook in the, in the show notes as well. I've got one final question for you guys. And, and again, anyone that's listening or, or knows somebody that's affected with autism, a family that's affected, please take a look, send them the links to this for the podcast episode. We've linked it in the show notes. We actually also linked uh, an episode we did several years back with Sam Mitchell. He was a, a autistic uh, young adult who came on and shared his story. So you can click the link there in the show notes as well. Uh, final question, though, for you guys, uh, anyone that's listening that is affected with this, a family, especially parents that find themselves maybe in the same shoes or similar shoes that you guys found yourselves in 20 years ago, what advice do you have for them today? I think it it really uh, goes back to, you know, it's, it's it's patience, it's love, it's it's leaning into that area of interest, which may, again, seem counterintuitive. Uh but that is that is where the connection and the magic is. So um, we always talk about find their special interest and celebrate it. Find ways to do things together. Uh, find ways to 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 get the same joy that that they get out of that. Um, because uh, you don't. None of us know what our our journey or pathway is, and it's certainly true uh, of these kids. Um, so, um, go where they are. Um, and, and, um, that's where there's a lot of beauty. Mm. Margaret, I know you have something to share. <laughs> I would, I'm just going to build on that and say, don't give up. There's always hope. Um, and to build and build on those moments of joy, because without those moments of joy, um, you know, life should be life. Even when life is hard, life should be fun. So bringing in laughter and being together and uh, light moments will make all the difference. You don't have to be on the outside of the house looking in forever. Right, right. Absolutely. You can make train noises and make all the difference in the world. <laughs>